Our Father, as we come to Your Word today, we are grateful for it. And we are grateful for the way that it reveals Your will, reveals things about You that we would not otherwise know. Your Word nullifies every false religion. It nullifies every effort of the flesh to please You. And so we pray, Lord, that the Spirit would work in us during this time to grow us in our understanding, to grow us in our desire to be like Christ, and to grow us in our application of Your Word, that we may apply it to our lives, that our lives may be changed, transformed by the power of Your Spirit working as we study Your Word for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the 25th chapter of Matthew. We'll be looking at the last parable in our study of the parables today. This is, uh, it's been 24, I believe, 24 parables lessons. Uh, one month we had, um, we had Easter, the first Sunday of the month, and the other one, I can't, I can't remember exactly what happened, but this is number 24, uh, and it's the final lesson in our study of the parables, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I have very much enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm kind of lamenting the fact that this is the end. Um, what we'll be doing as we start our study of John is the first Sunday of the month will actually be a study in the Psalms. So we'll be looking at a psalm on the first Sunday of every month after, um, after next month, because next month we're actually going to have our last lesson of Genesis the first week. It was in his commentary on Titus chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, that John Calvin wrote some very famous words. He said, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And the passage, uh, that passage is the one in which Paul was discussing the qualifications for an elder, which concludes in verse 9, where Paul says that an elder must be the type of man who steadfastly remains, quote, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to, uh, so that he will uh, be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That is one of the qualifications for being an elder. A pastor elder must use the scriptures to accomplish these two very important purposes, exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting worldly ideologies, man's ideologies that contradict the Word of God. And it's perhaps... I don't know, an indication of the, the spirit of the age when we consider how uncommon and, and maybe even controversial uh, it is when a pastor argues against a worldly ideology from the Scriptures these days. It was J.C. Ryle who said, quote, it is no real honor to a minister to be thought of well by everybody, <laughs> end quote. And, and so a defining aspect of the, of the elder's responsibilities, the pastor's responsibilities, according to Scripture, is to, un- is to know what the worldly ideologies are that are out there and know how to refute those worldly ideologies, to warn those whom God has given us to shepherd, that would be you, and to equip you with an understanding of why this or that ideology is worldly and wrong, or dangerous even. 
Did, did you know that it's controversial to refute false doctrine in our day and age? Do you know that that's, that's even controversial? It's something that people sometimes get a little bit worked up about. In many churches, perhaps the majority of churches in our day and age, the second voice of the shepherd is rendered silent. He's expected to teach what's true, of course, but is there really a need to even mention or discuss false worldly ideologies? In fact, people like it better when the preacher just stays positive and uplifting and, and encouraging, teaching what's true without even mentioning what's false. And it's true that we have to focus on what's true. But we also, as a, as a pastor, as, as an elder, I have to understand that six days out of the week, you are being bombarded with these other worldly ideologies that are out there. And so part of my job is to help you understand why they're wrong. The result in our day and age, is the, the, God's purpose in preaching is not completely fulfilled a lot of the time. And the result is that error spreads even amongst the flock of God's sheep when this duty is neglected. The poisonous weed of false doctrine infiltrates the pen that holds the sheep. And before you know it, the sheep think it's good. And not only do they think it's good, but they, they think it's, it's essential. They think it's, it's a must that everybody should be eating this poisonous weed. And as a shepherd, an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's my responsibility to make sure that you're not eating proverbial poisonous weeds. And so with that said, let me repeat the words of John Calvin. He said, quote, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And as we conclude our study of the parables of Christ today, we're going to be looking at a passage that has been twisted and abused to justify the consumption of a poisonous weed that right now is growing all over the place in America, growing abundantly and rampantly in the Christian church in America. And that weed is actually an old adversary that the church has faced and defeated before, but like a virus, it's mutated and it's come back with a fury. And this enemy, of course, is the social gospel. In a new book called The New Evangelical Social Gospel, which I fully recommend that you, uh, that you read, it's free, uh, contact me. I, I can send you a PDF or uh, a file that you can put on your Kindle to read. But in this new book called The New Evangelical Social Gospel, the authors note that one of the main differences between the social gospel that emerged 100 years ago, uh, the, the social gospel that emerged in the early 20th century, and the social gospel that has mutated and re-emerged is this. This is the difference. They say, quote, the difference between the two is simply liberal versus conservative. This new version is, in fact, the old, presented to Christians as a wake-up call for social justice, end quote. In other words, a hundred years ago, the social gospel was, was appealing to liberal-minded people. In other words, people who denied things like the divinity of Christ, the, the deity of Christ, the resurrection, uh, the virgin birth, things like that. But now it's being aimed at people who are very conservative. Now, I know it's possible that you're not even really 
familiar with the social gospel. Maybe you don't know what it is. So let me help you understand real quick. The social gospel was a theologically liberal movement that put a very heavy emphasis on social issues a hundred years ago. Things like poverty and, uh, and war, uh, social reform. And those people, the proponents of this movement, saw it as the church's mission to transform society by advocating for laws and policies which promoted their definition of justice. While at the same time, these same proponents would underplay, they'd place minimal emphasis on things like doctrine, salvation, faith, uh, Christian purity, things like that. So the social gospel is built on the idea that we as the church have not only the responsibility, but also the ability to change the world by meeting the physical needs of people, even if that means neglecting spiritual needs. This is false. That is not the church's mission. The church's mission is to proclaim the gospel. So this is heresy, but it's backed. And it's being heralded by theologically conservative brethren. These are, these are brothers in Christ who are disseminating it. They're spreading it to theologically conservative Christians. And that's us. And one of the go-to passages of this movement is the parable of the separation of the sheep and the goats. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, we've covered uh, two uh, parables from this chapter, in fact. Uh, but Jesus, in, throughout this chapter, he's talking about his future return. And so he tells three parables. We've already studied two. First, he told the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And if you remember, the point of that parable was that we need to be ready for his return. Uh, then he told the parable of the talents. And the parable of the point of the, uh, the, par the point of the parable of the talents was to remind his disciples that they need to be working for the kingdom between that time and the time of his return. And in the parable that we're looking at today, he's going to just tell us what it will be like through parable when he returns one day. So let's take a look at the parable. May the Lord give us wisdom and understanding about it and from it. So let's look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the least, to, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say, he will also say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. About 35 years ago, maybe close to, closer to 40 years ago, it was Keith Green who wrote a song about this parable and ended it by saying this. And this was a very commonly held view. He said, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this scripture, is what they did and didn't do. And in one sense, I suppose you can say, okay, that's, that's true. There, there is an emphasis in this passage on what the sheep do and what the goats do on, on the actions of each respective uh, animal. But one of the fundamental rules of rightly interpreting the Bible is to never just read one passage, to never just uh, isolate one passage by itself. We have to see how this fits in with the, the larger passage, in fact, how it fits in with the entire book, and in fact, how it fits into the larger framework of the entire Bible as a whole. And so if you, if you just have this passage to go by and you didn't have any other scripture at all, you might end up that the, uh, affirming that the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they do and don't do. You might end up affirming the position that a person is saved by works. They're saved because they did this, or they're saved because they did that. But that is not the testimony of Scripture as a whole at all. Rather, from Genesis to Revelation, the message is that salvation is entirely by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah, or in Christ alone. And Paul emphatically declares in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it's crystal clear in this passage. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And yet crucial to our understanding of the, the doctrine, of the concept of salvation by faith alone is that we're saved by a faith which isn't alone. Rather, it's made evident through works, which is why James said, famously, in James chapter 2, verse 26, he said, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It's a passage that confuses a lot of people. What does it mean that faith without works is dead? Well, what James is saying is that if a person makes a confession of faith, some, some type of profession of faith in Christ, and yet their life remains completely unchanged. They still engage in the same sinful habits that they always have. They still have the same sinful thoughts, the same sinful desires, the same sinful actions. And so their lives are untouched, unaffected, unchanged. It's an indication that whatever faith they might have isn't true saving faith. 
It's not a faith that gives evidence of one's salvation. So let's just be perfectly clear about the testimony, the clear testimony of Scripture. We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. We're saved for works, which, by the way, is exactly the point that Paul was making back in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, where he said we're saved by grace so that nobody can, can boast. He says in the very next verse, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works, not by good works. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So we're saved by faith alone, but it's a faith that is not alone. It goes hand in hand with works. You might say, as one person once did, the faith which has not a sanctifying influence on the character is no better than the faith of devils. It's a dead faith because it's alone, end quote. So whatever our understanding of this parable in Matthew might be, it must comport with the testimony of the rest of Scripture. That is, it's like a puzzle piece. Picture this, this passage like a puzzle piece that fits perfectly into the overall picture. It's the same color. It's the shape that it needs to be to fit in. It's, it's a, a significant and important part of the whole picture. And in this parable, Jesus likens his return to something that his audience at the time would have understood. They understood things like agriculture and uh, images of shepherding. They would have understood the separation of the sheep and the goats. Now, it's in a way, it's similar to the parable of the wheat and tares, where the, the tares are planted among the wheat, and they, they even look like wheat. Uh, I suppose sheep and goats look somewhat similar, at least from a distance. But the real difference between sheep and goats goes much deeper than just how they appear on the outside. The truth is, they have very different dispositions. Raising sheep is not like raising goats. They're totally different animals with dis different dispositions, different natures, different inclinations. So they do what they do because they are what they are, if that makes more sense. But, but hold on to that thought because that's actually crucial to understanding uh, this parable. They do what they do because they are what they are. So Jesus tells us, of the day when he comes again he says that when he returns in his glory and all the angels will be with him as he sits on his glorious throne he'll start dividing up the nations directing the sheep to his right hand and the goats to his left hand now obvious question what do the sheep represent they represent God's people, right? I mean, uh, this is a theme that, one of those themes that runs throughout all of Scripture. We saw that it actually started with Jacob, who was a shepherd and saw that God was his shepherd. Uh, and the goats, what do they represent? They, uh, they represent the reprobate, those who are not Christ's sheep. And you know what I love about j just the first couple verses of this parable? is that Jesus leaves absolutely no question here about exactly who he is and what gives him the right to judge the nations. He is God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. He's the King of glory who has the right, the exclusive right, 
to judge the reprobate from the regenerate. And this king of all glory will first gather the nations before him. And once he has them gathered before him, he will separate them, the sheep, those who have been saved, to his right hand, and the goats, those who have denied him, to his left. And first he'll speak to the sheep. He says to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Why do you think, they're, why do you think he says that? Why do you think they're blessed of the father? Blessed of the father. It's because the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity, is the one who draws unregenerate sinners to Christ. And it's as a gift to the Son, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that He does this. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, No one may come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he goes on to pray in John chapter 17. He prayed to the Father, those whom you gave me, I have kept. See, if you are in Christ, if you have put saving faith in Christ, it's because you were drawn to Christ by the Father as a gift from the Father to the Son. He says, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, when the Father draws a person to Christ, it's not because God looked down the corridor of time and saw that somebody would believe. That would mean that God learns, which would mean that God changes. It would mean that God improves because He becomes more and more knowledgeable as time goes by. And if God improves, if God changes, then He isn't God because He can be better than He currently is. Does that make sense? Can God be better than He currently is? No. God is the height of goodness. There is no potential in Him to become better than He already is. He is the essence of goodness. And He cannot change. He does not change. No, if you are drawn to Christ, it's not because God saw that you would believe. It's because the Father drew you to Christ with His sovereign grace. And it's His eternal decree. Period. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us, the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And He chooses by grace so that none can boast of their own goodness or their own merit. And I understand, because I've been there, that there are so many people who get so offended. Christians who get so offended uh, with the doctrines of election and predestination. But as I've grown in my understanding of, of Scripture and as the Lord has humbled me uh, through my walk, one of the things I, I've learned is that this doctrine of predestination and election is the greatest display of God's grace that's known to man. Because the truth is that if I look at my life, I can't think of a single reason that God would choose me. I can't think of a single reason that He would extend grace to a wretched dirtbag of a sinner like me instead of somebody else. And if any of us truly examines by the light of Scripture, if they truly examine their, their lives, their hearts, minds, motivations, we'll see that 
without unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace, we have absolutely no hope. And now he gets to the brass tacks, so to speak, of what Jesus is saying in this parable. It says, The sheep are invited to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. For, look at verse 35. He says, For, or because, they fed him when he was hungry. They gave him something to drink when he was thirsty. They were hospitable to him when he was a stranger. He was too poor to afford clothes, so they clothed him. He was sick or in prison, and they came to him and visited him. And you have to think that if, if this parable was playing out, sheep and goats being separated, you'd think that the sheep would just look at each other in, in shock and utter confusion. And, and one says to the one next to him, I didn't do that. Did, did you do that? And the other one says, I, I didn't. It, it wasn't me. He, he's confused. And he goes to the, to the sheep next to him. Hey, hey, buddy, was that you? Did you do it? And, and so there's this murmur going over all the sheep, and they can't figure out, when did we ever do this? We never did this. Not a single sheep can remember one time when they ever had this kind of encounter with Jesus. And here's where we get a very plain, a very straightforward understanding of what this passage is saying what it's about this is not about the golden rule um, doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you you know i, I was listening to one sermon I, I listened to sermons of the passage that i'm going to be preaching so that i can get some ideas of whatever people have done with it and i was listening to one pastor preach about how he had helped this kid out at, at um you know bought him a subway sandwich and he said that the reason that he did it is because he realizes that one day it might be uh, it might be his kids who are down and out, his sons who are down and out. And he said, so I do this because I believe that what comes around goes around. No, <laughs> no, that is not what this passage is about. That is the demonic and false doctrine of karma. That's a, that's a Buddhist and Hindu belief, uh, that what comes around goes around. Uh, and, and so I was reading another sermon in which the pastor said that the point of this passage was that we show love for Jesus by loving and serving other people. Um, and, uh, by the way, that's how Mother Teresa interpreted this parable. She would, uh, she would say, you know, um, that, that when she's doing things for the least of these orphans and, and so on, and, uh, you know, where she was serving, that she was serving Christ. Um, that's close, I suppose, but it's, it's close enough maybe to look accurate. It's close enough to make you feel good about it. But that's not what this passage is saying. And by the way, this is uh, the same way that this new social justice cult interprets uh, this passage as well. Some within this new social justice cult interpret it the same way. Uh, one of the more well-known movers and shakers uh, who's leading this new social justice cult uh, writes in one of his books, he says, quote, a life poured out in doing justice for the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true gospel faith. Let me read that again. He says, a life poured out in doing justice for the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true gospel faith. Now, there's a lot of truth there. 
But at the same time, I would say, you know, if, if you look at the people who help the poor, uh, y- you can find atheists among those who are helping the poor. You can find Buddhists, you can find Hindus, you can find Muslims. Uh, so there, you can't n- draw a necessary connection between the two. Uh, and then in an interview with Christianity Today magazine, that same pastor said this. He said, quote, it's biblical that we owe, it's biblical that we owe the poor as much of our money as we can possibly give away, end quote. You catch the lingo there? We owe the poor as much money as we possibly can give away. That's, so, so it's not charity, it's not grace, it's obligation. And friends, that is not biblical. That is not biblical at all. It is biblical to have compassion for the poor and the needy and to treat them justly. That is absolutely biblical. But it's not even remotely biblical to show partiality to the poor. And when you just give all your money to the poor, when they haven't worked for it, you are being partial to the poor. Because there are other people who are working hard to earn their wage, and then there are people who aren't, and they're poor. And so who deserves the money? The people who are working for their wage. I mean, that's, that's a clear testimony in Proverbs. Uh, it's throughout Scripture. It is not biblical to show partiality to the poor in this way. That is not justice. That is injustice. Think about what, uh, what Moses writes in Exodus chapter 23, which we, which we looked at before the sermon. And, and that's certainly not the ideology that this particular parable is promoting. See, there are two things here that we need to make note of. We need to make note of what Jesus says in verse 40, not only about what the sheep did. That's important, what the sheep did but also for whom they did it. And what does Jesus say? Look at verse 40 with me. He says, To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And that's paralleled, by the way, uh, down in verse 45. The least of these. So Jesus doesn't say that if you've done these things for the poor, you've done them for him, at least not necessarily. He says, to the extent that you've done it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. So here's the question that we need to ask. Who are these brothers that he's referring to? Here's a hint. He's not referring to humanity in general. He's not referring to the pagan idea of the the brotherhood of all humanity. Now, I understand that that's, that's the way most people, or at least some people, read this. But that flows out of a poor understanding of the doctrine of the church. So who is Jesus referring to here? Who are his brothers? Now, some would say uh, his fellow Jews. We can rule that one out too, because the answer has to be found as close within the context as we can possibly find. In other words, we want something in the same passage, if not in the same passage, in the same book, uh, maybe in the same Testament in the New Testament? Is there any other place, though, in Matthew's gospel in which Jesus defines who his brothers are? He does, in fact. Back in chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus was teaching the disciples and the crowds, and, he, uh, and, and starting in verse 46, we read this. He says, 
Uh, Matthew writes, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Verse 47, someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? That's a good thing, right? Jesus is now asking the same thing that we're asking, or we're asking the same thing that that Jesus was asking there. And so in verse 49, we read the answer. We we start reading the answer. Uh, Matthew continues saying, and stretching out his hand toward the disciples, toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. And verse 50 gives us the punchline. He says this in chapter 12, verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So when Jesus is talking about the least of these in this parable, who's he referring to? He's referring to Christians. He's referring to Christians. He's referring to the the church, the church invisible. Now again, let's make sure that we understand this in light of the testimony of all of Scripture. He's not saying that you are saved by taking care of or serving other Christians. What he's saying is that if you are taking care of and serving other Christians, if you are loving other Christians, it's evidence of genuine faith. Because the world hates Christians, right? I mean, isn't that what Jesus said it would be like? Didn't he say, the world will hate you because you are not of the world? That's what Jesus said. Remember also what, uh, what happened with Paul. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, and, and he was eager to, to persecute Christians, and suddenly Jesus appears before him and, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul was thinking, wait a minute, I, I didn't persecute you. I, I've never seen you before. But the truth was, what Jesus was saying there is that he was persecuting Christ because he was persecuting those who were in Christ. So it's kind of the same concept here. Serving the people of Christ, serving the people that Christ died to save is the way that we serve Christ himself. And that's what testifies to a changed nature, a transformed nature, which is what testifies to our salvation. So serving the people Christ died to save is the way that we serve Christ himself, which bears evidence of salvation. Now, I don't want to say by any means that we should not be charitable toward the needy, that we should not be compassionate toward the poor. We absolutely should be. All I'm saying is that's not what Jesus is teaching here. No, we we should be compassionate and charitable toward the poor and needy. To do so out of a sense of obligation, however, as the leading uh, pastor said, is 100% wrong. But we should care about the poor, and we should have compassion for the needy. As R.C. Sproul once noted, the Mosaic Law encourages generosity toward strangers, and he cites Leviticus 23-22, a principle not limited to the Old Covenant era, and he cites Luke 14, verses 12-14. to James also uh, comes to mind again. 
Remember that it was James who also wrote, not only that faith without works is dead, but he also said, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the poor. So I don't want you to get the idea for even one second that we shouldn't have compassion toward the needy and toward the poor. We should. But this parable, the words of Jesus in this passage, are not a call to social justice. They are a call to love and to serve the body of Christ. It's a call to participate in the fellowship of the saints. It's a call to carry out the one another commands. You've heard me ask before, if if you don't go to church, how could you possibly carry out the one another commands? You can't. The person who doesn't come to church can't do what Jesus is saying they should be doing here. The person who stays away from church for whatever reason should examine himself or, or herself because as John says in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The fate of the sheep is in accordance with this new nature that God gives to the sheep. See, we were all, every single one of us, we were all born as goats. We were all born with a disposition to disobey God. Paul says in Ephesians uh, that we were children of wrath. And it was not within our natural ability to love or to seek God because we were following the devil, the world, and the flesh. But when God intervened by showering us with His grace, by lavishing His grace upon us, He also gave us a new nature. A nature that would seek God. A nature that would love God. A nature that would desire to obey God. To submit to Christ. And would cause us to have a love for His people as well. Because the new nature more and more learns to love the things that God loves. And God loves His people. Sheep do what they do because they are what they are. Sheep do what they do because of their nature. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do you have this transformed nature? If you, if you look at your life, are your desires worldly? Or do they align with the will of God, the desires of God, the values of God in Scripture. The fate of the goats, on the other hand, is pretty grim. Jesus tells us that He will say on that day, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And so the goats on his left are sent into an eternal fire, a place of eternal extreme torment. Now in the previous parable, at the end of the parable, this place, this this place of torment was described as an outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about hell. And it's just. It's justice because the wage of sin is death. 
And the thing that identifies them as goats is a, not only a lack of faith in Christ, that, that's what's at the root of it, but that, that lack of faith in Christ is made evident by a lack of love, a lack of compassion, a lack of charity and service unto His people, unto Christians. So really, there are only two kinds of people, friends. There are sheep and there are goats. There are those who have repented and believed in Christ, and there are people who have refused to put their faith for salvation in Christ. They're trusting in something else or someone else, or they're not trusting in anything. They just think that there is no God, there is no heaven, which is a lie, by the way. It's a truth that they have suppressed in their own unrighteousness to deny that God exists. There are people who will take up Christ's offer to come to Him in faith and surrender. And there are people who think they'll be able to get into heaven some other way, but who will end up in hell for all of eternity. There are just two kinds of people. There are no other options. There's no reincarnation. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There is no purgatory. The idea of purgatory includes the idea that we have to atone for our own sins, that Christ's work was insufficient. It, it denies the sufficiency of what Christ did for His people on Calvary. It denies that He bore every sin of everyone who will put faith in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him, the Father made Christ, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The reality is, the reality that this parable forces us to acknowledge is that Christ is coming back. And when He does, He will separate the sheep and the goats. He will separate and judge the living and the dead, the faithful and the faithless. And know this, there is nothing that you have done in your entire life. There is nothing that you can do in your life that is more important than being ready for that day. But know this, there's also nothing that you have ever done in your life that would disqualify you from receiving this free gift of grace and eternal life in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Christ's work is sufficient. It can be forgiven. And who would, who would even dare to deny that, they, that they've sinned? Who would deny that they've, they've done things that they, they even knew that they shouldn't do? The Word of God clearly declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not even one across all of humanity, all of human history, there is not even one who is righteous. There is none who is good. Not even one. The book of 1 John says that if a person claims that they have no sin, the truth is not in them. They deceive themselves. To deny that you've sinned, for a person to deny that they've sinned, is to call God a liar. And here's the bad news. Without a righteousness that is equal to God's, equal to Christ's, 
you will not be allowed into heaven. Instead, you will suffer under God's holy and just wrath for all eternity. The Word of God declares that there are only two eternal destinations. There's heaven and there's hell. And to deny that is to call God a liar. If there are only two eternal destinations, and if one of them requires that you have the righteousness of Christ, where will you end up if you've fallen short of His own standard of righteousness? See, what God demands in order for you to be saved is for you to have His own righteousness. For you to have a righteousness that is equal to his own. And friends, the good news of the gospel is that his own perfection is precisely what we receive, what we take upon ourselves passively, what he, what he puts on us when we freely accept the gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption in Christ. It's a righteousness that isn't our own. It's one that we haven't earned. It's one that we don't deserve. But it's a righteousness that we receive by grace alone, the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ, His only Son alone. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says this. It says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, is credited as righteousness. Faith is credited as righteousness. So will you come to Christ in faith? He's promised that He will never cast out anyone who comes to Him. Instead, He will take you as you are. He will wash away your sin. He will forgive you of every sin you have committed. He will bear your punishment before God for you as your penal substitute. And He will lavish His grace upon you, reconciling you to Himself. And He will clothe you in His own robes of righteousness. So do you want to have Christ's perfect righteousness when you stand before Him? The answer is yes, you do. Because you're in trouble if you don't. The sheep receive His righteousness. The goats have their own righteousness. If you call upon Him in faith, believing that He is the way, the truth, and the life, He'll hear you. If you call upon Him and believe that God raised Him from the dead, He will save you. He will credit you with His own perfect righteousness so that when you stand before Him on this day when He returns that He's talking about in this parable, you will stand with the sheep in His own robes of righteousness. Do not come to that day with even the slightest sin on your shoulders, friends. Come to Christ. Believe in Him. Receive His righteousness. Receive grace. Receive redemption, be reconciled to God, and be counted among His sheep. And on that day, when He returns in His glory, and the King of glory sits on His throne and judges the nation, you will be able to cling to this promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
Are you sure that you're counted among the sheep? We're instructed in Scripture to examine ourselves. In fact, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper today, and one of the things that we're instructed to do before we do that is to examine ourselves. Are you sure that you would be counted among the sheep in God's flock? Are you sure? Because Jesus is coming again one day. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.